Is file ownership different in every matter? Under what circumstances does the client own the file? Host Julian Morrow chats with Alyssa Baxter, General Counsel at LawCover, about key risk issues around file ownership. They examine recent case law and what this tells us about issues around file ownership in different circumstances. They provide practical points to reduce risk and prepare you for when a client says, I want my file. Alyssa Baxter, we're talking about file ownership today and who owns what. I was interested to know first up, as head of legal risk and compliance at Law Cover, do file ownership issues come up very often? They do, actually. They come up quite regularly. And when they come up, they can be um, a bit spectacular. So we will often have people um, ring us in a little bit of a panic saying, I've got the client here and they um, they are demanding to have the file. Do I have to hand it over to them? And we need to have pretty instant answers as to, um, yes, you have to hand it over. No, you don't. You can take these bits out. You can take those bits out. So this this is an issue that comes up quite often. Well, it sounds like you're almost like a sort of hostage situation negotiator when you get those calls. That's amazing. <laughs> well, look, let's talk about the main principles of file ownership. And the, the leading case, of course, is Wentworth and De Montfort, the 1988 case. Uh, what are the principles that emerged from Wentworth and De Montfort? So I think um, the main takeaway a lot of people get out of that case is it's very complicated. Um, There's no easy answer to the question of who owns the documents in a solicitor's file. Um, But I do think if there's one guiding principle, it's looking at the predominant purpose for which a document was created when deciding who ultimately owns it. So um, first of all, you would look at uh, the question of why a document was brought into existence, who brought it into existence and the purpose for which it was brought into existence. And then think about whether the client was charged for it. Um, So if someone brought it into existence and the client has already paid for it, then that might have some influence over who owns it. Mm. Um, And also that case talked about the ownership of that actual physical document itself, like the paper on which it was printed, which had an influence on whether or not uh, or who, who owned that document. Um, but that case spent a lot of time going through in quite a lot of detail individual documents and deciding exactly who owned each one of those documents. Yeah, so it's a complicated picture and it does sound very, very ancient, doesn't it, the, the, the physical paper that it's printed on? I assume that or do, has digital technology changed the, the issue of, physical ownership of files much at all, do you think? Not really. Not as much as you'd think it might. So mm. the the principles are still going to be the same. Um, and the reason that solicitors resist handing over documents um, isn't because of the value of the paper. Um, <laughs> when they were uh, resisting handing over documents in all of these reported cases, it's because of Um, not wanting the client to have access to the information in those documents. And so it's not so much the paper uh, that is valuable. And I don't think the technology makes that much of a difference um, because the documents still exist in a number of different forms. And you're still going to have arguments between clients and solicitors as to whether or not they need to hand over all of the documents or whether some of them can be held back. And, uh, you know, as soon as clients and solicitors start having these sorts of discussions, it has the potential to be very uh, 
destructive for the, the relationship between solicitor and client, isn't it? Because you don't want to be arguing over this stuff. So usually you'll find that when these arguments happen, the relationship has already broken down. Yes. So the most often, the, the time that you're going to have this argument is after the solicitor has ceased to act. So someone has sacked someone else or um, where, in fact, that whole relationship is finished and we're now moving on to a different case and and the client wants to come back and get documents from this solicitor in order to start a different case possibly against the solicitor so usually the argument happens because the relationship's broken down it's not the cause of the relationship breaking down all right well look let's talk in general terms then what are the circumstances where documents that are held in the file are owned by the client so this is going to be almost every document that's held Mm. in the file most most things that are in a solicitor's file actually belong to the client because, I mean, as a general rule of thumb, almost everything in that file is something that the client has paid for. But there are some guiding principles that did come out of the De Montfort case. Um, so documents that existed before the, the case started that the client um, created uh, those documents that were sent to the solicitor. They usually belong to the client. So, that makes sense, yeah. Or, yeah. So examples uh, might be something like um, uh, if I had a contract that I'd entered into and I came to see you as a solicitor and ask for your advice about that contract. That contract is still mine. I still own that, even though I've sent it to you. So that might be a document um, that that I still own as the client. Um, a document that you uh, as a solicitor create um, where you've had a conversation with someone and you've made a note of that conversation. You had that conversation on my behalf. Uh, you made a note of that conversation. You made a note of it so you could tell me about that conversation. You pay. I paid for you to go to that meeting. I paid for you to tell me about what happened in that meeting. So that kind of documentation, that's going to belong to the client. Um, and that's mostly because of the general principles of agency. And that's mm. what the, the court found in the De Montford case. Solicitors are in general terms acting as agents for their client. And so um, when they do something, when they go to a meeting, when they have a telephone conversation, they're usually doing it for the benefit of their client to um, pursue a case for their client or to advocate on behalf of their client. So almost all of those documents are probably going to belong to the client. As you said, it is an agency relationship, but it's not a standard agency relationship, isn't it? And that's, I suppose, where things get tricky. Yeah, that's exactly right. And so some documents are um, are prepared for the benefit of a solicitor, and I, I guess we can talk about what those kinds of mm. documents are. But but I guess the the thing to come back to each time is, that there isn't like a hard and fast rule. It's not black and white. Every time you've got a contentious document, you have to look at the document and think, what was the purpose for creating that document? Um, and what kind of evidence is there around about, about what that purpose was? So sometimes um, a bill might be very good evidence that um, the document was created for the benefit of the client because the client paid for it. If I am a solicitor and I draft an affidavit you in proceedings in which you're a party um, and I charge you four hours for drafting an affidavit, that's pretty good evidence that you've paid for it and that, and that you probably own it. 
And the principals in Wentworth and De Montfort got some new consideration recently in the case of Alexiou versus HWL Ebsworth Lawyers. Uh, that was decided by Justice Kavanagh of the New South Wales Supreme Court on the 7th of May this year. Alyssa, did the case of Alexiou change the law on file ownership, do you think? It didn't, but it brought it very much into the forefront of people's consciousness this year. So that was an unusual case. It was unusual because the relationship of solicitor-client was maybe a little bit tricky to work out. So yeah, could you explain I, that for us? It was a little bit complicated because um, in that matter, it was uh, about ANZ who had an investigation that was happening from ASIC. And the ANZ Bank had their own solicitors, which were Clayton Utes, um, but there were also employees of ANZ that were asked to give evidence to ASIC. Mm. And ANZ agreed to appoint separate solicitors. They appointed HWL to act in the best interests of the employees. And so HWL were acting for Mr Alexiou, who was an employee of ANZ, but ANZ were paying the bills. Now, that didn't change the solicitor-client relationship, which was still between HWL and Alexiou, but it, it did kind of complicate it a little bit because the bills were being paid by a third party. So that made it a tiny bit tricky. But later, Mr. Alexiou wanted to sue ANZ. So he had his, his employment terminated and he wanted to sue ANZ and he wanted to get hold of the file notes of conversations between HWL and ANZ. Now, as far as the solicitor-client relationship is concerned, which is between Alexiou and HWL, ANZ is a third party. Mm. But HWL maybe had a slightly different view about that because they were the party that were paying the bills. And so they didn't want to hand over the file notes of those conversations. And that, the question the court was being asked to consider was, were the, were the file notes of the conversations between HWL and ANZ, did they belong to Mr Alexiou or were they prepared for... HWL's own purposes. And was Alexiou seeking all the file notes? He wasn't seeking file notes of conversations that HWL had with him. So mm. what you might call the solicitor-client file notes, they weren't an issue. Um, I think it was accepted by all parties. Those belong to the solicitor. The question was conversations with third parties or attendances on third parties, including the ANZ, were file notes in relation to those conversations belonging to the solicitor or to the client. How important were the express terms of the retainer in this particular case and perhaps more generally? So there was some talk in this case about how uh, there was no express term in the retainer in relating to the ownership of documents, which I think puts too fine a point on it. There are not very many solicitor-client retainers that are so detailed that they would give consideration to the ownership of every different type of document. Mm, mm. So it, I would frankly be surprised if there were very many retainers that said, by the way, we own all, the, all of our file notes. So I'm not certain whether that would be determinative of, of ownership ultimately. And what about the the purpose that the client was seeking those file notes for obviously things had gone a bit pear-shaped and there was an a termination of employment case pending does that make any difference no so it won't make any difference the reason um if if a client owns the document even if the client wanted to use that document to sue the person who created it 
it doesn't make any difference as to who owns it. In, ve- in fact, I think that's something where clients often want to get hold of the solicitor's file precisely so they can sue the solicitor, which is a very good reason why solicitors might not want to give it up. Nevertheless, if the document belongs to the client, if the client's paid for it, if it was created for their purposes, they are allowed to have it and they are entitled to demand it. One of the issues you referred to is this, this critical question of who's paying. Uh, what were the facts of the situation in Alexia in terms of who was paying for the file notes that Alexia was seeking? So that's slightly complicated in the Alexia case because a third party was paying for Mr Alexia's representation yes. by HWL, but that didn't really make a difference in the case because um, the court did have a look at um, who paid for the creation of file notes. And one of the arguments the solicitors raised was um, we didn't charge the client to create the file notes. In fact, they don't have a billing code for creating file notes in their system. And that was part of the argument. They said, we don't ever charge clients to create file notes and therefore file notes mustn't belong to the client because they weren't charged for them. And the court said, that's not determinative of who owns the document and and the time recording itself doesn't necessarily answer the question, was the client charged for it? So the court said when um, the solicitors recorded their time for attending the meeting, which was quite a long time, like three and a half hours, part of that was spent taking notes or creating file notes. And so even though it was all called attendance, on the timesheet, it didn't make any difference because they were actually going there, having a discussion, writing notes, thinking about things. All of that is encompassed in the in the time recording of attendance, but it also included part of the, the creation of the file note. So just because it doesn't, there isn't something in the bill that says making file note, we're no, exactly. not, not in the clear. And no. indeed, Justice Kavanagh said that the the reference to the law firm not having a, a code for charging was more technical than yeah. substantive or real. Uh, and what about this issue then of having a note taker there? I think we're all familiar with the scenario where the phalanx of lawyers walks in and, and the more junior they are, the less they seem to speak. Uh, does that lead to some sort of presumptions about uh, what their role is uh, and who's paying for it? So, so in this case, because um, so there were, there were two things going on. The judge couldn't find any evidence and no evidence was put forward about the actual purpose for the creation of the file note. Mm. So the person who attended the meeting as the partner and the person who took the file note, neither of them gave evidence before the court to say the reason I made the file note was for the solicitor's own purposes. And in the absence of that kind of evidence, the judge was forced to look around to make a decision, well, well, what else can I look at to decide uh, what the purpose of creating the file note was. And the judge looked at the roles of the two people who were in the room, the partner, who usually is the one who goes along and does all the talking, and then the junior solicitor who often says nothing and whose who's only role appears to be taking a note. Now, because the more junior solicitor still charged the client for going to the meeting, then the judge said, well, it looks like the only thing you were doing was creating the, the file note and you were doing that on behalf of the client and the client was being charged for it. And for all those reasons, I'm going to presume that the purpose of the file note was for the, for the benefit of the client. And the 
judge said, well, if the junior solicitor was there for the purposes of the solicitor, then they shouldn't have been included on the bill, arguably. That's right. <laughs> or they should have said, they should have got up and given evidence to say the real reason I went to that meeting was so that I could take notes for my own benefit or for my partner's benefit. So, But because they, they didn't want to put the solicitors up on the stand, yes. they then didn't have the benefit of that kind of evidence. Uh, Ebsworth, in this case, did uh, also try and at least uh, be able to charge for the cost of getting access to these files. How did they go with that argument? So because um, the file was thought to be produced under subpoena, you are entitled to charge your reasonable costs Mm. of producing documents under a subpoena ordinarily. So if you are not related to the proceedings and you're asked to produce documents, you usually can charge your time for doing that. And I think that might have been the basis upon which Ebsworths were seeking to charge for their time of then producing these files to the client. But His Honour Justice Kavanagh wasn't having a bar of that. He actually said it was part of a solicitor's duty to produce, to offer up to the client the full file. And that is, it's all part of the professional service that when you hold something on behalf of your client, you then have to be able to produce it to your client. Yeah, and described it as the ordinary function of operating a professional practice and that the time spent is really in the nature of administrative time. So no joy there for Hebsworth either. And what we often tell people when they are offering up their file to the client, it does belong to the client, the vast bulk of it. Um, It's often a good idea for them to take a, a copy, but you can't charge the client for taking a copy. You are entitled to have a copy of documents that you've created but you do that at your own cost as a solicitor. Hold, you're holding on to it for defensive reasons, really. Uh, when we've been talking about uh, file notes and trying to discern whether they were for the benefit of the client or for the solicitor themselves or, or their firm, isn't it a bit of both? Is it possible for legally for there to be a finding that the purpose of a document, well, that there is more than one purpose? It, indeed, and that came out in De Montfort as well. In that case, the court found that there could be a a multitude of reasons for producing a document and there could be multiple reasons for producing the same document. So, for example, if I had a telephone conversation with a solicitor on the other side and I'm representing a client, I make a file note so that I can remember what was said in that telephone conversation so I can tell the client. I'm also making a file note so that I can prove that the other solicitor said something to me that I may later want to rely on. So there are multiple reasons why I might have made that file note. Um, I think in most cases, it doesn't change the fact that I'm still acting as an agent for my client. And so the file note's probably going to belong to my client, but I'm also going to be able to take a copy of it because it was partly created for my own purposes. And if you are taking a copy, then don't charge for it. Don't charge for it. That's right. So, Alyssa, what would you say is the the main messages uh, for solicitors that they should be aware of in terms of client file ownership? So I think there was maybe a misunderstanding in parts of the profession that they had kind of in their heads a rule of thumb that file notes belong to solicitors and documents belong to clients. Now, that's That's not the law and it has never really been the law. What the rule of thumb you can use is that a a file note that you make of a conversation you have with the client, that most likely belongs to the solicitor. And 
And Julian, if you and I had a conversation and you were my client and I was giving you advice, you have the benefit of that advice because you can hear me saying it. So when I write a file note of it, you don't need that file note. You've already heard me give you advice. The reason I've written the file note is so that I can remember I've given you the advice. And more importantly, when you sue me, I can prove that I gave you that advice. And that is the, exactly the kind of file note at Law Cover. We're always drumming into people, please take a contemporaneous file note of the advice you've given. We need it to defend you. And that's exactly the kind of reason why that document belongs to the solicitor. It's created for their own protection, to remind themselves of the advice they've given, to be able to defend themselves in the uh, event that a client says they weren't given that advice. And the client doesn't need that. It doesn't serve their purpose to have the file note because they've already got the benefit of having the advice said out loud to them. Whereas it makes sense that if I'm talking to someone else and I'm, I'm acting on your behalf, I'm making a telephone conversation to someone else, um, you won't be able to hear that telephone conversation. So I have to take a note so I can tell you about it because I'm acting as your agent. So that's the difference, I think, between those two types of file notes. And very important to be aware of. And I suppose also, even though it might not be, uh, might not have been critically determinative in Alexiu, probably solicitors should have a think about what their administrative systems for timekeeping and for billing are to make sure that some sort of automated process doesn't end up being the critical factor in a difficult situation. Absolutely. And I think a lot of solicitors um, know that they can't charge for creating a file note of a conversation they have with a client. And so they always do that, say, straight after they've had the conversation, after they've stopped billing the client about it. Whereas a situation like in the Alexiu case, where they were making a file note at the exact same time as attending the meeting, those two things kind of came together. And, and that's what ended up, I guess, tripping up the solicitors in that case arguing they didn't charge specifically for the writing of the file note, but they had charged for the whole time of attending the meeting in which the file note was created. And so that administrative process ultimately didn't go in their, in their favour. And I can imagine that there are competing pressures there as well, because if you're a junior solicitor, you don't want to uh, switch to a non-billable code for the time when you're making a file note. So, yeah, the, the, the presumption that you can sort of, uh, well, but I suppose if, if something ultimately if something finds its way onto a bill, then the chances are you, it's going to be harder for you to claim ownership. I think that's right. I wouldn't want to get too hung up on the billing. I know that that was a big argument that the yeah. solicitors used in that case, that there was no billing for it. But But really, you need to be thinking carefully and critically about why are you creating a document? Because that's really the, the most important question. I think if I created a document as a solicitor, as an agent for my client, even if I forgot to bill for it, it would still belong to the client. The fact that I hadn't charged you for it mm. isn't going to be determinative of whether or not you own it. Well, lots to think about. And uh, the more you get your, your system set up earlier, the, the presumably less chance of having to make a panicked call to <laughs> law cover at the last and minute. Yet, you should still call us. You should Indeed. still call us if you've got a question. Well, look, uh, I know that you uh, 
imagine the scenario of you and me having a phone conversation before. I'm pretty confident, Alyssa, that uh, the podcast host, podcast guest relationship doesn't give rise to the solicitor-client <laughs> relationship. And in any event, I would not complain because I've been very happy with the information that's been provided, and I'm sure you've been taking copious notes while we've I been speaking. I will after this, but I won't. <laughs> Excellent. Fantastic. Thanks very much, Alyssa. And of course, uh, there's more useful information about file ownership and the like on the Law Cover website. Thanks, Julian. Thanks for listening to Risk On Air by Law Cover. Join us for the next episode and subscribe to stay up to date.